everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Last episode before Election Day 2020. We're dropping this pod a little bit late today because I really want to talk about Texas and I really want to talk to Beto O'Rourke about that. And so I wanted to uh, to talk to him. So we're, I recorded this on Thursday. Um, and here we are. We know a lot more about this election than we did even a week ago. We see... Um, as I'm recording this, uh, over 75 million people have voted in the United States of America. Um, we have many states now that are north of 70 or 80 percent of their overall 16 turnout already. So um, a lot to, to crunch there. And I'm sure a lot of you are spending time, um, you know, looking at what Dave Wasserman has to say about this or Nate Silver has to say about this. Uh, you've got experts in states like Nevada, uh, John Ralston. You've got uh, in Florida, Steve Shale. You've got so many people out there who are crunching these numbers. I think if you were to sum it up, and there's some differences state by state, um, you know, you like what you're seeing if you're a Democrat. You're seeing um, good, very strong turnout, number one. You're seeing a lot of young voters, um, very high numbers amongst young voters compared to 2016 so far. You're seeing a healthy number of first-time registrants or sporadic voters. Um, so that's all great news. Now, of course, the question is, does it remain through the rest of the period? We've still got a lot of states where you can vote in person, a lot of mail ballots still out there. Um, in Florida, I think it's still over 2 million mail ballots haven't been returned. Now, of course, if you live in Florida, you can just return that ballot uh, to a Dropbox or um, bring it to um, an elections office. You can bring it to your precinct on election day. Um, so that's the other thing. Um, you know, uh, right now, um, there's a lot of concern that ballots that would be dropped today won't make it in time. So if you know anybody that has a ballot, really work with them uh, to turn that ballot in in person. So make sure it gets counted. Um, so the question is, do these numbers continue or are the Republicans going to have a surge at the end of the early vote period? And then, of course, Election Day, um, as well as early vote can go for you. You have to hit your numbers on Election Day. Uh, and so I get often asked by people, uh, given these polls, um, even people who understand that no two races are different, so let's not live in the rearview mirror of 16. How can Trump win? That's how he could win, which is we uh, basically uh, decelerate at the end of early voting period uh, and really do not have the kind of Election Day turnout we need. So that's why everybody out there, I'm sure all of you are, but um, sign up for more uh, GeoTV phoning ships, shifts. It's super easy to do. Um, you'll call for two or three hours into states like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Obviously, you live in those states. Uh, even more important for you to do all you can. Sign up to help people drive people to the polls on Election Day. Um, and, uh, you know, on Election Day, you're going to have phone calling happening. And in the states that are doing it, door knocking with people who haven't voted yet. Now, maybe even people who have had requested an absentee ballot and hadn't turned it in. So we have to get to those people and have to encourage them and exhort them and plead with them uh, to go to their polling location to vote. So, um, you know, all in all, I'd say the early vote period, um, if you'd like Joe Biden to be our next president and you'd like the Democrats to win back the Senate, looks very good. Um, but we still have quite a bit of road to travel. Another thing I'll remark on before um, I get into our conversation with Beto about Texas is the map. 
Um, you see Kamala Harris is going to Texas. Joe Biden's going to Georgia, um, uh, continuing to hit, obviously, the core battlegrounds uh, up in the upper Midwest in Pennsylvania, Arizona. We saw Barack Obama uh, in Florida uh, once this week, and he's going back. Uh, so, um, you know, the Biden campaign is just playing offense. And, and the good news is that's held up. You know, sometimes you can see polling and a state looks close. And then, you know, as it really gets into the last week, particularly in a state that seemed like a stretch, you know, the numbers kind of revert back to the favorite party, uh, the party who's the favorite in that state. But uh, here we see everything hang in there, Iowa, uh, Georgia, Texas. uh, And that's great news. Um, I still think it's unlikely that Joe Biden, um, you know, wins Georgia and Texas and loses, let's say, Arizona and Wisconsin. Um, But, you know, you know, these states are changing pretty dramatically. And if you look at the turnout in Texas, it's it's judged by many to be the hardest state to vote in the country, sadly and tragically. Uh, but it's got the strongest turnout to date. And we'll certainly get into that with Beto. Uh, but we see really strong turnout uh, in Georgia as well. So the map um, is very much to Joe Biden's liking. Donald Trump has to run the table. He has to make sure, you know, a Georgia, a Texas uh, doesn't slip through for Joe Biden. And then he's got to defend um you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida, um, and win four of those. Um, now, you know, he cl- pulled close to an inside straight last time, but you really have to like where Biden is in the race. And, and then, of course, it's how these two candidates are closing. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump's super spreader events, you know, he was in Wisconsin um, on Tuesday night. Uh, huge crowd. Um, we saw a lot of people actually got stranded afterwards, including a lot of elderly voters who came down with hypothermia and had to be hospitalized. But as every local television station and every local newspaper um, is covering the increase in hospitalizations and COVID cases, there's Donald Trump holding these massive events, which we know from polling um, is not where the American people are. They want caution and, and they want um, smart leadership, and that's not what Trump's giving. So you know, there's rumors he's going to attend his schedule even more and do five or six events a day. And honestly, you know, in a normal election, you never like to see your opponent doing more events than you. That means you're getting to more states, more markets, you're using it to organize. You know, at every event, you're asking people to sign up for, for volunteer shifts. But this is hurting Trump. So um, uh, that's the bizarre place we're in. We have an incumbent who's losing this race right now. Uh, and as he fights to try and uh, erode that lead that Joe Biden has, all he's doing is setting himself back. And I, and I think Biden is uh, handling this in a very smart way, which is, you know, to be out there, um, you know, one event a day, maybe two events a day. Um, you know, he's uh, on Tuesday, you know, met with his um, COVID advisory team. So you compare that, the coverage of that versus Trump doing these massive events where now we know um, from reporting that a lot of these sites, not surprisingly, have turned into super spreader events where cases have risen, where Trump's done events. So, um, you know, Trump can yell all he want and Don Jr. can yell all he want about his crowds. You know, Biden and Obama and Harris are purposely having small crowds. That's the point. And Trump, um, you know, just doesn't understand that. Um, and and listen, crowds are important in politics. Uh, they can signal a lot. But I remember in 2012, so many people wrote uh, that Romney was going to win based on his crowds at the end. And, you know, crowds, the people who come out to political events are awesome. Uh, but it's still uh, in, a, in a country where 150 or 160 million people are going to vote. Very few people would ever think about an attending an event. Uh, but again, the, the real point here is Trump is holding events. 
that underline one of the central arguments against his presidency. And Biden, I think, is handling this extraordinarily well um, and, and is being cautious. And the message is, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to share my message and I'm going to share my plans, but I'm going to do it in a way that's responsible. So it looks very different. You know, the close of a presidential campaign is usually you're crossing uh, the country, uh, you know, crisscrossing time zones, doing uh, huge events, OTR events. That's just not what Biden's doing uh, to close this race, and he shouldn't. And so if I were, you know, I know some Democrats get concerned about that. Don't. I think the way these campaigns are closing uh, is really consistent with the entire campaign. Trump is reckless. He's arrogant. He's narcissistic. He's putting people in danger. Uh, and Biden's doing the opposite. So um, I think, you know, long and short of it, we all have the PTSD from 2016. Uh, those of us who've worked in politics a long time have other examples of races you thought um, were going to go one way and they didn't. So I, um, I'm always very cautious uh, about uh, getting overconfident in races, particularly the ones I was, you know, responsible for. Um, until you actually saw the actual votes on election day. And then as precincts get reported, does that match up to what you were expecting, both in terms of your vote share and your turnout? And until we see that, um, you know, the polls uh, are directionally important, and you'd certainly like to be where Biden is in the race. I mean, Biden's position in the race right now is better than Clinton's in 16, Obama's in 12, and many states, even Obama in eight, uh, certainly more than Kerry in 04 or Gore. So you really have to go back to Clinton 96, which was a strange race because you also had Pro in there. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the lead is significant. It's real. It's been stable. In some states, it's growing. In some uh, states, it's just maintaining. But until you see actual votes, you know, um, did the vote share that's showing up in polling actually materialize? And then, more importantly, um, you know, did you do what you needed to from a turnout perspective? Because that's still the one way Trump could pull an inside straight here, I think, is just to have much stronger turnout here at the end of the election day, early vote period. Um, sorry, the, uh, at the end of election, early vote period and on election day. So that's what we have to be vigilant about. So, um, you know, my advice to everyone is uh, work as hard as you can, sign up for more shifts, um, share good content on social media. Um, you know, if you're just burned out of making phone calls, uh, you know, work on a hobby, work on a project. Don't spend time refreshing uh, political websites. Don't spend uh, time on Twitter um, behind what you need to just to do a quick check-in. I mean, it's just not healthy. Um, so keep yourself busy um, and also prepare mentally that there's a chance we do know the outcome on November 3rd. If, if Biden wins by the kind of margin these polls suggest, we very well might, but it may take a few days. Um, and so mentally prepare for that as well. Um, but, you know, I think we enter this last weekend because of the work of so many of you who listen to this podcast and, and, and across the country who've done remarkable work to register voters, to turn them out, um, to work on persuasion, um, you know, to share and create content. Content. Uh, it's been a wonder to see. And I think Joe Biden's run a very, very disciplined, uh, smart campaign. He kind of is the man for this moment. Politics is so much about timing. Um, you know, he might not have been, um, you know, the strongest general election candidate uh, in other times, just as Barack Obama wouldn't have been uh, in other races. But, but his um, experience, his empathy, his calmness, I think the way he's been disciplined about his campaign uh, and not really listening to those who are asking him to get out of character uh, is right for this moment. And I think General Malley Dillon and, and the team there has done a really, really 
really great job of, of you know, expanding the Electoral College battlefield. Really great advertising. I'm sure many of you have seen the ads that are running in these battleground states. They're really, really strong. Um, and, you know, uh, close the campaign in a way that reinforces the central argument in the campaign, which is we can't afford four more years of Donald Trump because he's been reckless and, and divisive and he's a narcissist. And people just want Washington to quiet down and work. And in many respects, Joe Biden um, is the perfect, um, uh, he, he's kind of out of central casting for that role that people are looking for. So um, hang in there, everybody, and uh, we'll get through this. Um, and hopefully on the other side of this, we're going to have a great celebration about a great uh, 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden, his vice president, Kamala Harris. Uh, Democratic Senate. Hopefully we gain 10 or 15 seats in the House, which seems about the upper range, and win back some state House chambers. So we're going to talk about Texas today. Texas is a state that we've all said in politics for some time, eventually it will become purple. And the question was when, and I think better or work Senate race against Ted Cruz in 2018 really accelerate that discussion. But, you know, there's a question of how much of that was Cruz's unpopular, Beto just ran such a, a great race and was an exciting candidate, and 18 was a good Democratic year. You know, we learn a lot from 20. And what we see is, uh, first of all, uh, a lot of uh, people who follow Texas very carefully thinks the Democrats have a chance to win back the Texas State House, which would be an enormous accomplishment. The Senate race down there with MJ Hagar and, and Cornyn is competitive. And then, of course, we have the presidential race, which right now you would consider to be a dead heat. My personal view is um, you'd still probably slightly favor Trump um, uh, if you look at some of the polls and historical. But when you look at the turnout down there and the composition of who's turning out, um, um, you know, I think none of us should be surprised if Joe Biden wins uh, Texas, which would just be a, a great capstone <laughs> uh, to Donald Trump's demise. But no one's worked harder um, to turn Texas around than better or work. And what's amazing about uh, Beto is he decided to run for president. Um, and ended up, like so many in that field, uh, deciding, I think, in a responsible way to end his bid uh, when it was clear um, that he couldn't put together what he needed to in the first states to win. But um, what he did then was go back to Texas and just basically become an extraordinary grassroots organizer um, and has devoted um, all of his time and his, his talent um, in every corner of Texas to organizing, to convincing people that we could win, uh, raising resources to do that. It's really remarkable to see someone who's a national figure like that. You know, he was probably the one of the most prominent, if not most prominent candidates in 2018, runs for president, and then basically goes home uh, and toils uh, in, in the vineyards of his home state to um, turn Texas blue. And, and when, when Beto started on this journey, um, you know, let's say at the beginning of this year, very, very, very few people outside of maybe his core um, really thought it was possible. And, and, you know, so much of politics is believing that you can win. Uh, and Beto believed that 2018 was not just an aberration, that Texas ultimately could be in play this year. Uh, and, and of course, if it is in play this year, now you have the, the dynamic of an unpopular Trump. But, you know, if we win Texas or get very close, what that means for 2022 and 2024 and beyond uh, could not be more important given the size of the state, the number of the electoral votes. And you're going to have a lot of people now who have become um, voters 
in Texas, young people, um, maybe uh, folks who hadn't been registered, hadn't participated. Um, that's part of why you see such great numbers in Texas, and that's what it takes. You have to basically rise, uh, you know, sort of raise your high water mark to get, you know, um, more people consistently voting, more people consistently volunteering, more people consistently active, and so that's what Beto's done. And so I'm, I'm really eager to talk to him about where he sees the race today, the work that's gone in uh, to bringing Texas to where it is today. Uh, some of the scenarios he sees unfolding uh, as we start counting votes there and then what it means for the country and for Texas in the years to come. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Better Our Work. Better Our Work, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me on. You did a remarkable thing. You are a national political figure. You end your presidential race. You could have done any number of things. You you go home to Texas and you say you're going to work at the grassroots and you're going to turn Texas blue. And pretty much nobody believed you. Certainly in Texas, people did. But now here we are on the precipice of the state state house perhaps turning blue. You've got a very competitive Senate race on the heels of your own. Uh, and Joe Biden looks like he could win. And I just want to add, you know, Texas is rated to be the hardest state to vote in, tragically. Your governor's made it even harder. Yet it's now, you know, five days out from the election as the strongest turnout. So just tell us where we are, Beto. Yeah, I mean, I think that that point that you just ended on is the story of 2020, a state that prior to the 2018 midterm election was 50th in the nation in voter turnout and not 50th for any lack of love of democracy or voting or participating in elections, but 50th for 144 years of active voter suppression the most onerous voter ID laws in the country implemented literally in, in the minutes after the Shelby decision in 2013 that gutted the Voting Rights Act right on the heels of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fiery dissent in that decision. You know, you could use your license to carry a firearm to prove who you are at the ballot box, but you cannot use your student ID at the University of Texas at El Paso to prove who you are at the ballot box. You've had since Shelby 750 polling place closures in the fastest growing state in, in the country. And those polling place closures, which by the way, that's like, you know, more than any other state by a mile, by a multiple of, of two, two and a half. Um, those, those are concentrated in the fastest growing black and Latino communities. You have a racial gerrymander. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of a, of a federal three-judge panel in 2017 that found that the Republican state legislature literally drew Black voters, Latino voters, out of a congressional district to diminish the power and impact and even likelihood of their vote. And then, as you mentioned, Greg Abbott, in the last few weeks, removed... Uh, all supplementary absentee ballot drop-off boxes in every county in Texas that had them. So Harris County, which has greater landmass than the state of Rhode Island, more people in it than the state of Nevada, has one absentee ballot drop-off box, which might force a voter to drive 50 miles in order to, to cast her vote and to, to drop off her ballot. And wait in line for hours, right? I mean, it's so outrageous. Didn't, by the way, didn't your, Beto, didn't your lieutenant governor just say yesterday, Republicans would be doing better except for all these damn people who are voting, essentially? Yeah, it, um, I mean, he, he said out loud what we've all known all along, which is they're, they're not afraid of voter fraud. They are afraid of voters and voting. 
Which is what, to your point, that's what the governor very strategically set out to do. Absolutely. And, and I don't think they, they are done. But, but in the face of all that, going from 50th to, as you just said, we are first in the nation in votes cast. We're first in the nation in votes cast relative to 2016. In fact, I think the first four counties that exceeded their 2016 total votes cast were all in the state of Texas, beginning with Hayes County which forever was a reliably red county, which flipped blue in 2018. I think we now lead the country in youth voter turnout. So Texas, dead last, 50th place to first place over the course of, of two years. I think the story of 2020 is, is the Texas voter who's willing to overcome right. all of these obstacles in her way in order to cast her ballot. And that makes me extraordinarily proud and encouraged, although you know, as you said, we've still got five days to go and they are, you know, the Republican governor, attorney general, lieutenant governor, Republican state legislature and the president are doing everything they possibly can to stop people or discourage people or intimidate people from voting. So we still have our work cut out for us. And so we will not stop until 7.01 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on the night of November 3rd, reaching those voters who have yet to cast their ballots to make sure that they get that vote in, in time to not just decide the outcome in Texas, but my theory of the case to you is that Texas decides the outcome for the country. That would be a remarkable, remarkable story. So Beto, normally I do this at the end, but just in case anybody doesn't listen to our whole conversation, I want to stop here and say, how can people, both those listening in Texas who haven't got engaged yet, but the many around the country, how can people help this effort in Texas over the next five days? So the group we started to, to reach these voters, register these voters, and now help turn out these voters is called Powered by People. And our website is poweredxpeople.org. So Powered by People with the by being spelled as an x.org. And when you go there, you can sign up for a phone bank shift. And the really remarkable thing, David, to me is that more than 10,000 people over the last six months all across the country have signed up for a phone banking shift and have made millions of phone calls. We also have folks who sign up for text banking shifts and we're doing some safe canvassing right now as well. And all together, we've, uh, we've attempted just under 60 million voter contacts over the, the course of, of this year. And all that is, is been done by, by volunteers. And I, I've got to, I've got to think that those volunteers have had some role in helping to um, to produce this this turnout that we've seen, um, and you know overcome these obstacles that have been placed in in our way here in Texas. So I'm really encouraged by that. But we we still have need for more volunteers, right. and so if you want to sign up for a ship a shift, by all means, please do so. Yeah, sign up, people. No, well, those volunteers have 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 made it happen because we'll get to the fact that you've done this largely uh, without the presence of, you know, our national political ticket until today. So, Beto, um, when people ask me, and I'm sure they ask you all the time, well, look at these polls. How could Biden lose? Uh, and, and, you know, polls aren't votes, simple statement. But, you know, you look at early vote, which has gone better in Texas than anywhere else in the country, but it's gone well in most places, right? But we still have to make sure we uh, execute early vote so we don't have a drop off. And then the good news about early vote organizationally, as you know, is, you know, you've taken a lot of people off the roll. So now you say we're down to only 30% of our GOTV target. We have to work on election day. The bad news is that's the last time you have to capture those people and get them to vote. So talk about election day in Texas.
Texas, as well as early votes gone, you obviously can't have what we saw in Florida in eight in 16, which is Hillary had great early vote numbers and then kind of fell off a cliff on election day. And Trump just dominated on election day turnout. So talk about election day and kind of how you're viewing that in Texas. Yeah. So I think the effort on the part of organizers and I was just knocking doors yesterday in Garland, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex for a state house candidate with the Texas Organizing Project, which David, they, for the last 10 years, this group called TOP has been knocking on the doors of low propensity black and Latino voters, specifically the voters that the state government has tried to you know, take off the rolls or suppress or exclude from voting in, in the first place. Um, Top has been trying even harder than the Republican majority has in in connecting with those voters and, and helping them to turn out. And, you know, they they are just beginning a very aggressive, but, you know, socially distanced and safe um, canvas to, to reach those voters ahead of Tuesday. To your point, um, not uh, assuming that this trajectory will hold or that this is the entire story. And in many counties in Texas, as you probably know, You'll get half the vote in early voting and you will get half the vote or more on on election right. day, 50 50 40 60 you know depending on on the county so there are millions of votes left uncast right now and and if we do not accelerate our efforts and uh, get even more volunteers on doors even more volunteers on phones yeah, there's, there's a very real possibility that we will not achieve our goal of winning a democratic majority in the state house winning these congressional races, winning the U.S. Senate race, winning the railroad commissioner race, which has nothing to do with railroads and everything to do with oil and gas, the environment and confronting climate change before it's too late. And then then, then the holy grail, as far as I'm concerned, in, in American politics and elections, the 38 electoral college votes in the largest, most diverse swing state in the country, which have not been won by a Democratic nominee since Jimmy Carter did it in 1976. So, so if we want to achieve any of those things, um, we, we really have to ramp up as hard as we've all been working, ramp up our efforts over the next five days. So I will be knocking on doors. I'll be hosting these phone banks. We just had a big phone bank last night uh, during which we made 401,000 phone calls to registered Texas voters who had yet to, to cast their ballot, helping them make a plan to vote. And we've got phone banks, you know, day and night for, for the remainder of, of this deal. So so we are not taking anything but anything for granted. Well, that's great to hear. And for everyone out there who's not worked GOTV, again, uh, there's nothing more important because, you know, you have early vote. People can vote. We've encouraged everybody to vote early in the period. Clearly in Texas, you've seen that. But this is your last chance. You need to treat these conversations as, as the most important conversations in your life. Because if, if, if we if don't encourage these people to vote in those phone calls, they won't. So, Beto, you obviously ran for the United States Senate in a super competitive race. You didn't just run. You went to all of the 254 counties in Texas. You've stayed engaged. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you're seeing. I mean, I've talked to some people who are working in statehouse races in Texas, and they say some of those statehouse races in suburban districts like outside of Dallas have moved 20 to 30 points from 16 to 20. You probably even see movement uh, from your race in 18 to 20. So what are you seeing in terms of the state? So what gives you um, positivity in terms of what you're seeing trends? There's been a lot of focus uh, on uh, the fact that, uh, you know, in South Texas and in West Texas, 
uh, you know, Biden's numbers could be stronger uh, in the Latino community. Just to tell us what you're seeing sort of demographically uh, that will inform what happens when we start counting votes on Tuesday. Yeah, you, you mentioned North Texas and Tarrant County, which is home to Fort Worth, adjacent to Dallas County and right next to Denton and Collin counties, which are these fast growing suburban districts that have moved from very reliably red to absolutely in play. Tarrant County, up until 2018, was the largest reliably red urban county in the United States of America. It last voted for Democrat in 1994. We won it by the skin of our teeth mm-hmm. in, in 2018. What I'm, what I'm realizing now with the benefit of hindsight is, you know, I lost to, to Cruz by, by two and a half points, but, you know, we ended up producing together, all of us who were on the ballot that year and all the volunteers who knocked on doors, the largest voter turnout in a midterm in Texas since 1970. And the first time that the top of the ticket Democrat won the four major urban areas in Texas and the surrounding counties since LBJ did it in in 1964. You saw two Democrats pick up congressional seats, 12 new state house members, 17 African-American women win judicial positions in Harris County alone. What I'm seeing now is, is all of that, as amazing as that was, was simply prologue and preview of, of 2020. The, the uh, absolute amazing turnout in 2018 is, is um, just a, a shadow of what we are seeing in 2020 thus far. The amazing slate of candidates that I ran with in, in that year um, was just at the beginning of what we're seeing in this one, where you have state representative challengers, Democrats, running in places that last saw a Democrat on the ballot, David, 20, 30 years ago. I'll give you an example. In East Texas, there's a guy named Jason Rogers. He's a Democrat running for state rep. I don't know the last time a Democrat ran for state rep in that district. They, they basically left that ballot blank in, in November in previous years. He's an Army veteran. He's a uh, former public school teacher, and he's now working as a diesel mechanic. He's, he's from and of that community. Um, and, and he is, you know, he may or may not win, but I tell you what, he's generating far more Democratic votes and bringing out far more Democratic voters and giving Republican voters pause, especially those who are disaffected due to Donald Trump, and maybe bringing them in to the ballot box and voting not just for him, but up that ballot all the way to Biden. You you see that happening across the state. And, you know, what I think is so exciting is we typically think of a top-down ballot strategy. We we want that top of the ticket to rain money and votes down on these poor bottom-of-the-ballot contenders. What we're seeing is that these bottom-of-the-ballot contenders, these, these state representative candidates, who, by the way, are overwhelmingly women, and women of color, and so many strong black women among them uh, in a state that has done everything possible to keep black men and women from even voting in, in the first place. They are the ones that I right. think are responsible for almost 2 million new voter registrations since the last presidential election. They're the ones who are generating the excitement and electricity among the electorate. And I think that is going to flow up ballot instead of having to come down ballot. And Joe Biden, MJ Hagar, other you know, statewide candidates will be the beneficiaries of this work happening down here. And it is North Texas. It is East Texas. You mentioned you know, the Rio Grande Valley, my hometown of El Paso, which is breaking every turnout record that has ever been set there. 
And, and when you get to El Paso in the Valley, you're talking about communities that are 85%, 90, 95% Mexican-American that have borne the brunt of the worst of the Trump administration. I mean, the, the highest incidence of COVID infections and deaths, uh, front row seat to family separation and caging of, of kids, the Walmart massacre in El Paso, uh, you know, just a little bit more than a, than a year ago that claimed the lives of 23 people due to a gunman who was inspired by Donald Trump and echoed the very words that the president used to describe immigrants and asylum seekers and people who come to this country seeking a better life and producing a better life for all of us from Mexico. So um, when we connect the dots uh, for one another, um, people turn out and and vote. And that's what you're seeing happen in, in Texas right now. Beto, you mentioned your hometown of El Paso setting turnout records, despite the fact that you've got an acute health crisis. Uh, we have one all over the country, but you've got uh, hospitalization um, records there. You've got ICU capacity issues. Just talk about what it's been like to organize uh, in this election during uh, COVID in El Paso. But also, I'm just curious, I wouldn't be surprised if you talk to people who say in that area and all throughout Texas, you know, I voted for Trump in 16. I actually voted for Cruz in 18 when you ran against him, you know, but I'm voting Democratic this time. Yeah. L- let me tell you a story from one of the phone banks that I'll, I'll get back to your question about El Paso, but um, this was in the summer. I think this was in July. And we had a list that we were working through of landlines, which meant that uh, these were voters for whom we could not obtain a cell phone or who did not have a cell phone at all. And as you can imagine, it, it tended to be uh, more rural communities that we were calling into. There were older voters, there were wider voters, and they were more likely to be Republicans. And I, I can't tell you in the days that we called through that list, how many times people hung up the phone as soon as they heard my name or you know, gave me a, a, a nice expletive to, to take <laughs> with me before they, they disconnected. And I, I remember this one woman answered and she, she stopped me you know, mid-sentence and said, Beto, you're wasting your time. This is a Republican household and we voted for Trump and, and no thank you. And uh, I said, okay, I, I understand that. Have a great evening. And then she said, well, hold on a second. It, but is this really Beto? I said, it, it is. And she said, well, let me ask you some questions. She said, is, is Biden really the best you can do? Um, and, and what about this about Biden and, and who's he going to pick for his running mate? And I, I realized afterwards, these were buying questions. She, she was genuinely curious and she was she was asking them in, in a somewhat confrontational way, um, but she was really genuinely interested in, in my answers. And then she said this, she said, look, you, you've been very generous with your time. You, you took the, 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 you made the effort to call us. And so I'll tell you this, we voted for Trump in, in 2016 and we were planning to vote for Trump again, but there's been something that happened recently that stopped me. I said, well, what was that? She said, well, when we saw Trump make a plan to hold an indoor rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 19th, which as we all know is Juneteenth. And she said, which is Juneteenth, you know, Trump later moved it to the day after that's when it was originally planned. She said at that moment, I didn't know if I could vote for him again. And I, and I thought to myself, I didn't say this out loud, but wow. So the kids in cages, the, the open racism, the, the failure to meet the challenge of COVID, the worst recession since the great depression, exacerbated by this failure in, in leadership. None of that moved you, or maybe all of that moved you. And, and what it took was this, you know, holding an indoor rally in the midst of a pandemic on Juneteenth, the day that this country celebrates the emancipation of our fellow Americans, our fellow human beings. That is what moved 
this older white rural voter in the state of Texas. And, you know, you cannot extrapolate too much from that. Uh, this is just one anecdote, but I, I was, I was really encouraged and it. And, and David, that's why I make phone calls and knock on people's doors. You, you, you wouldn't believe it unless you heard it and right. learn never to assume anything about anyone, nor to write them off, nor to judge them. Um, nor, nor to, to make any kind of decision unless you've heard them first and, and did your best to understand where they're coming from. So that was extraordinarily encouraging to me. And then when it comes to El Paso, you're right. This is the hardest hit big city in the, in not, not just in the state of Texas, in the country right now. And this follows on the heels of what we saw happen in the Rio Grande Valley, which is many hundreds of miles away, but similarly situated on the U.S.-Mexico border you know, um, heavily uh, Latino, Mexican-American um, communities that have, have just been decimated by COVID. In, in the Rio Grande Valley, so many people died so quickly that you, you ran out of room in morgues and funeral homes, and they had to stack the dead bodies in refrigerated FEMA trailers because there was no longer capacity in the community. We in El Paso have exceeded hospital capacity, ICU capacity, they're literally building, you know, military grade field hospitals in, in the downtown of El Paso right now. And yet, as you just said, El Paso continues to break voter turnout records. This says something, you know, not so much about necessarily the candidates or even our party, but but about our fellow Americans. Yeah, it's, heroic. it's just heroic. It really is. It, re it really is. And, and I'll tell you, there's there's one person that I, I want to particularly call out in, in my community, Veronica Escobar, who is our member of Congress, and along with Sylvia Garcia, became the first Latina ever elected to Congress from the state of Texas, though we are 42% Mexican-American and, and, you know, obviously have a long, proud history of Latina and Latino leadership. You know, she doesn't have a, a really serious, um, you know, November election. She is pouring every moment of her waking life, every resource in, in her campaign into calling El Pasoans and turning, turning them out and helping them make a plan to vote in the most voter suppressed state. You know, ma'am, do you know where your, your nearest polling location is? Let me tell you the hours. Do you know what documents you need to bring with you? Um, can you go tomorrow? Uh, it, it opens at seven. We can get you there right before work. And I think she and others who are devoting that kind of time and effort are helping to produce this kind of turnout. But ultimately, the credit goes to the voter who's willing to brave these conditions. And in some cases, let's be honest, risk their health and potentially their lives in order to ensure that this democracy really works. So Beto, you have Kamala Harris coming in today. You'll be with her uh, later today. Uh, tell us what that visit can mean here in the last five days. And, you know, we still then have, uh, after today, four days left. <laughs> and, and I know that you've been uh, advocating for a trip from Vice President Biden. Uh, you think that still could be possible, like an election-y visit? I, I think it's amazing that Senator Harris is going to be here. Even more amazing that, you know, we mentioned um, how, how critical a role Tarrant County in North Texas, home to Fort Worth, plays in our elections. It, essentially, Tarrant County has, has predicted the outcome just about every major statewide election. And again, we, we won it by such a slim margin in 2018. 
there are many competitive state house districts within Tarrant County. Her visit there says something. She'll also be visiting Houston, Texas, which is the most diverse city in the United States of, of America. 120 languages spoken in the public schools in the Houston Independent School District. And then there's this, most exciting of all to me. She'll be going to McAllen, Texas. Yeah, that is, I was so happy to see that. So smart. I'm sure you had something to do with that. And, and you know what? So counterintuitive to most campaigns because, and, and you know your Texas geography, McAllen, uh, just like my hometown of El Paso, not easy to get to. You know, you don't have direct flights. Um, it's it's not in typically the, the consciousness of most national campaigns. And yet, in terms of what it means to our identity as, as Texans in, you know, a 90, 95% Mexican-American community uh, that has borne the brunt of the worst of, of Trump's cruelty, a place that is so often overlooked or forgotten or taken for granted because it is so reliably democratic for, for someone like Senator Harris, who could very well be the next vice president of the United States to, to make a point of coming to the Rio Grande Valley is so profoundly powerful. I don't think most people outside of Texas or even outside of the Valley get what that means. So I, I was so pleased to see that. And in fact, I'm, I'm in North Texas right now where we were knocking on doors yesterday with the Texas organizing project. I'm driving down to an eight hour drive uh, to, to be there in the Valley, to, to welcome Senator Harris and to do my part in trying to encourage greater voter turnout there. So I'm, I'm very, very happy with what the, the Biden-Harris campaign have done so far in, in, in you know, just acknowledging Texas, which, which for right. 20 years has not been acknowledged or more than 20 years. I, I, you know, to be honest, I, I certainly would love to see more resources devoted to the state because the, the state has done its part. The Texas Democratic Party, never seen it this well capitalized or organized grassroots groups like Top, Annie's List, you know, our, our organization powered by people, and then the Texas voter willing to stand in those lines for seven and eight hours, willing to overcome this voter suppression and voter intimidation. You know, that voter needs to know that the national ticket has their back. And, and if in the last Dallas Morning News poll, which was released Sunday, just a few days ago, which had, you know, Biden at 48%, Trump at 45%. And as you said, polls don't vote. And who knows what that poll means, except that it is possible. If that is all happening without, you know, relatively any investment from the national ticket, imagine what could happen with a significant investment from the national ticket, including a visit by the very top of the ticket. Now, there, there are only five days left to us. I don't know that, that Joe Biden's going to visit Texas, and we're not counting on it. We're, we're not waiting for it, and we're going to do the work necessary regardless. But I think his presence would be catalytic in this state. I sure hope that it's under consideration. Well, here's the good news, Beto. Because of the work of, of you and, and hundreds of thousands of people in Texas, in 2024, Texas is going to start at the beginning of the conversation about battleground states because it is such a backbreaker, those 38 electoral votes. So, Beto, the Texas State House has 150 members. Democrats only need nine uh, to win back the majority, made big progress in 18 when, when you led the top of the ticket. Obviously, winning back state houses matters in every chamber in the country, but I think it particularly matters in Texas. Can you talk about what it would mean for the Democrats to win back the state house heading into a redistricting year? Yeah, you know, Texas is is growing faster than almost any, if not faster than any other state in the country. <clears throat> That'll be reflected in the 2020 census count, which means that Texas will probably draw in three new congressional districts 
adding to the 36 that that we already have. Um, I mentioned earlier that this is a state that has been racially gerrymandered, where people have been placed in congressional districts um, solely based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their country of, of national origin. If Democrats pick up at least nine seats and have a majority in the state house for the first time in nearly 20 years, they will have a seat at the table when this state is redrawn in, in 2021. And they can draw back in people who literally were drawn out of not just a district, but a reason to vote and functionally drawn out of their democracy. I mean, this, this is part of the profound, pernicious uh, consequence of the, the Shelby decision in, in 2013. There, there's just no safeguard for this kind of, of voter suppression. And, and until we get a new Voting Rights Act that is enforced by a new administration, it's really up to the majorities that we're able to produce in the state house. Uh, the good news is, you know, we're nine seats down. In 2018, I actually won more votes than did Ted Cruz in, in nine of those seats that we have to pick up. And so we have turned out voters sufficient to win in the past. But then in addition to that, just since 2018, more than 1.1 million additional Texans have registered to vote, many of them in the most competitive state house districts. And our read of who is registering to vote bodes very well. Uh, those, those by and large are democratically inclined voters uh, who we now have the challenge of connecting with and helping to make a plan to vote and ensuring that they turn out in, in these important elections. And, and you know, again, if, if we win that majority, redistricting um, could become a much fairer process. And then you also have the ability for Texas to take the lead on some, some national issues that are front and center in our state. You know, the four of the worst gun violence tragedies have occurred in Texas, you know, El Paso, Midland, Odessa, Sutherland Springs, Santa Fe High School. This, this is the, the, the you know, front lines of, of climate change and, and the communities of color that, that literally sit right on, you know, the, the edge of, you know, disparate health impacts and deaths and, and the underlying preconditions that cause people to die from COVID. That's all happening right here in Texas. So on gun violence, on climate, on expanding access to health care in the least insured state in the country, Democratic majority state legislature can make progress on those issues. And then again, I think at the bottom of the ballot, when we're generating excitement, expanding the electorate, um, you know, helping to turn out more voters, that helps everyone up ballot, in, including you know, Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris. So a lot is riding on these critically important state house seats. Beto, you know, it is, you mentioned this earlier, just in Texas, that dynamic of, you know, these down ballot races are going to help the top of the ticket. And one of the things that's most exciting to me, and you were an example of this, I mean, if you look at 2018 and 2020, 
the Democratic candidates for U.S. Senate, for state house races, for Congress, you mentioned railroad commissioner, they are so strong because they're just like normal average Americans who, you know, basically have decided maybe not to make a career of this, right? But they're going to go uh, try and win office and serve for, you know, two or three terms, uh, take a swing at, at the plate and do their best. And to me, if we can make that continue, our future spread. So I want to talk, last question for you, because I know you've got to get on the road. When you think about Texas, we may have a state house to defend. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, there's U.S. House races. Hopefully we win a couple more seats. So we're going to have vulnerable incumbents to defend in 2022. We'd like Texas to be a core battleground state uh, in 24 and get rid of Ted Cruz in 24 as well, if he's running for re-election. So what needs to happen? You mentioned the work that your group is doing, Texas Organizing Project. What needs to happen over the next two to four years? So we're registering people when they turn 18. So we're turning people out uh, in, in off years so that we're recruiting candidates. It seems to me that the resources that we put into Texas are going to pay off five or tenfold <laughs> for our party if we can get this right. So you've, I don't think there's anybody who knows better, like what needs to be the roadmap so that the good outcomes we get in 2020, whether we win narrowly or lose narrowly, it's still going to be remarkable to think in four years how Texas has changed. How do we make this the new normal? Yeah, you look at some of these state house candidates who are running right now in Texas. And again, I think this is the most important and most exciting and most interesting level of the ballot. Uh, Elisa Simmons is, is a great example uh, up here in uh, North Texas in Arlington. She is president of the Arlington NAACP, uh, has not run for elected office before, is, you know, speaks her mind uh, from the heart. I don't know that she's met a consultant or a pollster or or, or listen to a focus group. She's she's talking and listening to voters and the people in the community that she's worked with forever. She has a really good shot of, of winning this race because she's just an extraordinary leader. But as a black woman, she really doesn't have access or traditionally has not had access to the same campaign resources, donors, network of you know um, campaign infrastructure that I as a white guy in the state of Texas have been the beneficiary of. And, you know, so I think if Elisa wins that race, we, we all, I mean, we've got to get behind her right now with five days to go to help her win. But, but when she becomes a state representative for that district, I think we all have to acknowledge that she needs support beginning on November 4th um, to make sure that she has the resources to compete again in 2022 when you know they will be coming after her with everything but everything that they have. I, I worked my tail off for Senator Obama in, in 2008 in, in the primary slash caucus in Texas, the Texas two-step, knocking on doors, hosting campaign workers at, at our home, um, you know, donating the maximum, you know, $30 at a time to my wife's consternation when we finally got the, <laughs> the aggregate bill. Um, and I, I just, you know, with tears in my eyes, you know, watched him, uh, you know, uh, make his victory speech on, on the night of that election. And then David, I, I'd like, I said, okay, great job done. Watch this guy go. He's going to save us now. And, you know, I went back to what I was doing in my life. And, and I realized now with, with the benefit of hindsight, that's when the work began uh, because over the, the next, you know, 10 years, I don't know how many hundreds or more than a thousand legislative seats, Democrats lost uh, majorities in Congress that were lost the Senate and, and so his ability to affect all of that amazing change that I was so excited about and was working so hard to help him 
win, which I thought was dependent solely upon the 2008 election, all that became compromised and much more difficult than it would have been otherwise. Lesson learned. So, you know, after November 3rd, 2020, you know, I think we drink a beer, um, you know, spend some time with our, our family and our kids. Um, and then we get back to work and, right. and we help to sustain these majorities that I hope that we have won. Um, and we prepare for the reaction, which is sure to come uh, down the line, you know, right away, as, as we learned after the 2008 election. And, and we have the courage of our conscience and our convictions to say and do the things that we know are important for our state and to connect with those voters who matter. Yesterday, when I was knocking in, in Garland, Texas, knocked on the door of a woman her one-year-old son was was at the window, kind of looking at us and and doing what one-year-olds do, pressing his face up against the window and um, laughing at at all of us who were camped out in her front yard. And she she spoke Spanish and she said to me, um, "Hey, I'm I'm so glad you're here." And she didn't know where her her nearest early voting location was. And she said, "You know, thank you for letting me know, and I'll I'll try to get there." Tomorrow, but she said, you know, I, I typically just see people like you um, in in the days before an election, right. and you know, maybe you guys are going to do what you say you're going to do, maybe you won't. Um, so I don't know, and I, I could tell she was she was telling me, you know, I don't know how important it is for me to vote because I don't know if things are are going to change. The reason I was knocking on her door with the Texas Organizing Project is because they will be back at her door not in October or November of 2022. They'll be back next month. Um, talking to her about civic or municipal issues in her community and helping her to get engaged in, in school board issues, city council issues, so that we have a relationship and a conversation ongoing so that when that election comes around in 2022, it's not a cold ask that we're making right now. So, you know, for all of us, and, and you know this, and I think your your listeners uh, understand this, we, we, we have to stay engaged and in the fight and do the work right after this election is said and done. And that is an exhausting prospect right now, given how hard all of us are working. But you don't want to find yourself in 2022 the way we found ourselves in 2010, um, you know, having to, to fight a, a surprise battle that we didn't see coming. Um, we know this is coming. So, so let's get ready. Pero that is such a stirring, you know, reminder and exhortation to people. I mean, yeah, you're right. You drink a beer and spend a little time with your family, but we need year round activism. Uh, and, you know, donating money is important and people need to do that. You, you know, your example about North Texas is great, but you know, that the TOP, uh, example you just used is exactly right. You know, to be at those doors when we're not asking for votes. And so many of these voters are low information, uh, you know, consumers of political news. They're not paying attention to the debates in Washington or in Austin. We've got to be telling them, hey, this thing just happened, you know, that's positive on healthcare or climate change. If we don't do that, you know, people are going to rightly ask what uh, is uh, in it for them and, and how this matters. So those, the, the, uh, to me, you just captured what we need to do, which is we got to stay at this and stay at this and stay at this. Maybe you can work a little less hard, you know, in the first quarter of 2021 20, uh, than you did the last quarter of 2020. But we have to stay at this uh, because Texas is the best example in the country. We have the numbers to win more elections than we lose. But if you do all that work in the last 60 days, you're not going to get anywhere. So we have to do year-round voter registration, year-round storytelling, year-round organizing. 
organizing. So uh, it's such a great model for what we need to do in the rest of the country, because the one thing we know, Beto, is, you know, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, you know, what's Mitch McConnell if he survives his race and Ted Cruz going to say day after? You know what? We're not going to help him do anything, not a dollar for anything, even though we've run up the biggest deficits of all time. We're still going to have a tough economy. So your point about 08 is a good one, which is the election is just the opportunity to make the change. The real change happens afterwards. So uh, everybody listen to better our work and and, uh, find a way to stay engaged, uh, even uh, in the quiet moments, because that's actually when people listen, I think much more so than they do around election time. Well, Beto, thank you for your time today. More importantly, thank you for all you're doing um, for our country, uh, for your state in Texas. It's a great model uh, for how we win elections. Uh, And, you know, you could have, after your presidential race, uh, you know, pontificated or licked your wounds or you know, made a lot of money, did whatever you wanted to do. But the fact that you've done this kind of organizing, door knocking, phone calling, rallying others, again, it's just heroic work. So uh, I'm glad that you're on the stage and nothing would make us all happier than to have your state be called on the night of November 3rd uh, and be the the first real uh, time we can say Donald Trump's a first term disgraced president. David, this is the happiest I've been in as long as I can remember. You know, I was in Congress for, for six years then I traveled the, the state of Texas for two years and traveled much of the country for a year last year. And so for, for the first time in what seems like forever, I'm, I'm living with my family. Um, I'm helping to raise my kids. I'm seeing my wife every day. And, and I'm a volunteer, just like millions of volunteers across this country, who's knocking on doors, making phone calls, doing what I can to support great candidates and ensure that this democracy survives this administration. And it, it is so fulfilling. And I just one quick message for, for anyone who is tempted by the despair that we are sure to feel in the face of, of so much death and devastation and struggle and suffering. And listen, I, I feel it too. And you know, I, I have to fight that off. The, the work that, that you can do by making phone calls or, or volunteering and it's tough. Like I, I don't like making phone calls to, to <laughs> strangers and interrupting their dinner and introducing myself and talking to them about one of the two subjects you're not supposed to bring up in in polite company. I I have a little bit of anxiety before every single phone call, even though I've made thousands of them. However, at the end of one of those phone banking shifts, I feel so fulfilled. I no longer feel like a a bystander or a witness or a member of the audience. I I have agency. I'm taking action. I'm I'm helping what, what I know is one of the most important causes in, in the history of, of this country. And, and for me personally, that has been the antidote to despair. And I think for all of us collectively, that is the key to victory. So if you're listening to this right now and, and you've been fretting and anxious and, and just down because of what's happening in this country, I don't blame you. But I will tell you that the, the key to getting past that is taking action. And there is still time to do that. Do not think that we're too close for you to make a difference with, you know, as of this recording, five days to go, you can make a huge difference. And you can certainly do that in the biggest battleground state in the country. And we'd love to have your help. So sign up for a shift to help Beto and all those amazing volunteers deliver Texas. So um, Beto, have fun with Kamala in McAllen today. And uh, we can't wait to uh, see what uh, happens on Tuesday down in uh, the big, incredibly important state of Texas. Thank you. Thanks for the focus on, on Texas. We, we are really grateful for it. And thanks for what you're doing out there. Of course. Good to be with you, brother. Thanks, Beto. Likewise. Likewise.